Thanks, Emily. Good morning. It's good to see you. At least some of your face, it's good to see. Uh, my name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to be welcoming you here this morning to Redeemer. If you are joining us from a place of belief or a place of unbelief, or if you don't know what you believe, we're so thankful to have you with us. We want Redeemer to be a place where you can feel like you belong, even if you don't believe what we believe here. And so welcome, glad that you're here. Uh, if you're new to Redeemer, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church, and what that means is we're a community of people, and we're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor. And the way that we go about doing that here is that we gather together each week so that we can worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that by worshiping Him, we might rest in His love for us. And then we get together throughout the week, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And we hang out with each other, we go on walks with each other, we get coffee with each other, we go tanning together, and we want to remind one another of his great love for us. And as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we might reflect his love to our city because we, we dream of, of seeing our city flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's kind of who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God, learn how to love our neighbor as we rest and remind and reflect his love. In order to help us do that, this season of epiphany, we're looking at this letter from the New Testament called First Peter, and we're trying to answer this question, what does it look like to be the church in a post-Christian culture? And I hope that by our attempt at trying to answer that question, it's helpful for you, not just if you consider yourself a Christian, but also if you don't identify yourself as a Christian. And here's why, because this book uh, lays out and presents to you what a Christian should look like, what a Christian is called to be. And as you look out in the world, there are just so many examples of Christian hypocrisy, where it would be easy to conclude if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be that. I don't want to even associate with that. And so I hope that this book is surprising for you as you see what Christians are actually called to be in this world. And uh, one of the running metaphors throughout this whole book, this running image, is that Christians, the church, we, we are exiles here. We're refugees. We're, we're immigrants. This is not our home. We're strangers here. And part of what that means is we have some strange things about us. And what I want you to see this morning is that we have a strange birth. Now, if that sentence wasn't strange enough, let's keep going. Look at, look at verse 23. You see there, he, Peter says that you have been born again. This is the second time in the first chapter alone that Peter says that believers are born again. He says the same idea in verse three of chapter one. Now, I know that that language of being born again has some real funky connotations in our culture. Maybe that even that language has baggage for you as you think about, you know, certain people in your mind when you think about that phrase of, you know, a born-again Christian. So what does Peter mean by that language, though? What, is, what does the Bible mean when it says that, that Christians are born again? I think that that question is actually really important, and I think the answer to that question is extremely relevant for where we are kind of in our cultural moment. So what I want to do this morning is look at what does it mean to be born again? Really under three headings. What it is, what it does, and how to get it. What it is, what it does, and then how do you get it? First, what it is. 
to be born, you know, in a sense means that you're, 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 you're coming alive. And so to be born again means that there is this new way of becoming alive even after you are physically alive. He's talking about spiritual life, that there is something that happens to you in your actual life that there's such a transformation that occurs inside of you at such a deep level, it could be said that you've become almost a different person. You're born again a second time. One of the best images or best ways that you know, pop culture has kind of captured this idea, I think, is from the movie The Greatest Showman. I included it you know, in, your, in your opening reflection at the beginning of your bulletin. P.T. Barnum, you know, as he's starting this circus, and in the opening scenes of this movie, he goes to the streets and he sings this song to recruit people to come and perform and live this circus lifestyle. And the name of the song is called Come Alive which is fascinating. He's using that, even that same language, that same imagery that Peter is using of saying, hey, you're, you're alive, but you're not really living. And so he's inviting you to come into life. Look, look at some of these lyrics. Here's how it begins. You stumble through your days. Okay, I'm not gonna sing it, but um, I'll just read it. You stumble through your days. You've got your head hung low. Your sky's a shade of gray, like a zombie in a maze. You're asleep inside, but you can shake away because you're just a dead man walking, thinking that's your only option, but you can flip the switch and brighten up your darkest day. And that's, that's amazing. He's looking at people and saying, you're sleepwalking through life. You're alive, but you're not actually living. He compares people to zombies, you know, walking around and saying, okay, you're walking around, you're doing life, but you're not alive. Now think about that. If you think about an image of a zombie, think of like from The Walking Dead. If you were to take a zombie from The Walking Dead and you were to ask this question, okay, how do I make that zombie become human again? What would you do? What would you do to make a zombie become a human again? Well, let's just say that your answer was, okay, we need to take this zombie down to the spa and give it a long bath with some high-powered exfoliating soaps. And then we need to swing by the salon and wash out the grime from her hair, maybe give her a cute trim. Uh, and then after that, we need to swing by Lulu, grab a, you know, a nice outfit, maybe throw in a mani and a petty. If you were to do that, would the zombie become human again? No, it would smell nicer, it would look cleaner, it'd be better manicured, would still wanna eat you. If the zombie is gonna become human again, something has to change at its, at its core nature of what it even is. So that's, in, in some sense, that's why P.T. Barnum goes on to sing, leave behind your narrow mind, you'll never be the same. Come alive, come alive. He's calling people to come into life. You'll, never, you'll be so transformed, you'll never be the same. Both P.T. Barnum and Peter are saying it's possible to be alive and yet not really living, but here's kind of where they part ways. Because P.T. Barnum says the way that you will come alive is by joining a circus. And that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter says if you're going to truly come alive and have your whole nature reconstructed, God himself has to burst into your life and renovate you from the inside out. He has to come in and so reconstruct you that you're a new person. 
It's not about just manicuring your outside. It's not about just cleaning up your language and cleaning up your behavior and beefing up your resume and trying really hard to be a better person. He's talking about something that God has to do almost at a supernatural level to who you are as a person. This is why in verse three of chapter one, he puts it this way. He says, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. God is the cause. He's the one by his spirit comes in and supernaturally transforms you that you might as well be a different person. That's what it means to be born again. God by his spirit supernaturally reconstructing who you are in, the, in your core being. But okay, what does that do? If that's what it is, what does being born again actually do? Well, look at verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from, the, from a pure heart since you have been born again. You see the logic there? He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? How can I do that? Since you have been born again. He grounds the reason for why we should love one another in the reality that you've been born again. So here's his point. Being born again means that you are now freed to love. In fact, that's one of the ways that you can know that you have been born again is that you have a new impulse to love people in ways that you didn't have before. New desire to. Think about it like this. My friend just sent me um, a, a video the other day. He lives in a different city, and in this particular city, they do not have a Popeye's restaurant. He's never had a Popeye's chicken sandwich in his life before. I know. So we should pray for him. But they just got a Popeye's like a couple weeks ago, and so he goes through the drive-thru and orders a Popeye's chicken sandwich, and he films himself you know, experiencing it for the first time, and he wanted to send it to me just to show me his first experience with a Popeye's chicken sandwich. And so he sends me this video and I'm watching it. And it's, you know, it's funny. He, he, he pulls out the bag and he pulls out the chicken sandwich, which, you know, it's a big sandwich. And he's kind of inspecting it and he takes a bite. And as he's chewing, you can see what's going on in his brain. For three seconds, he's just chewing and evaluating, what, what is this in my mouth? And literally after three seconds, his eyebrows kind of like lift up and he goes in for a second bite and with his mouth full of food, he, mu he mumbles, oh, oh, I like that, I like that. So he's just eating this thing. But of course, as I'm watching this ridiculous video of my friend eating the sandwich, what, is, what am I starting to feel? Hunger. I'm now thinking, I want that. So literally the next day I, I drove to Popeye's. Watching that video activated new desires in me that weren't there before. And so here's my point. Peter is saying the same thing, that this new birth, when God comes in and renovates you from the inside out, it activates new desires in you, new instincts. Becoming a Christian doesn't just change what you do, it changes what you desire. And so it, it, for somebody who's born again, yeah, th their actual behavior might change, but actually what is probably more fundamentally interesting and important is that your very desires change. What you want changes. And I don't know what this might look like for you. Maybe for you it's, 
Here's an example of, you see somebody post something on social media that you find offensive and wrong and crazy and you get instantly triggered and every impulse in you is to retaliate and to criticize and refute their argument and rage and hatred and destroy, must destroy this thought. But to be born again means that somewhere in there, you have an instinct to love. Maybe it is not as readily available as you want it to be. Maybe that desire kicks in way after the fact, and so it needs to, you need to respond first with repentance and sorrow. But the point is, is that even as you relate to people that you disagree with politically or theologically, people that you relate to even online, to be born again means that you have an instinct towards charity and empathy and kindness and love. Maybe for you, a, a different desire is that you find yourself having, having a, a new desire to have people in your home more. And I know that's tricky in COVID land, but maybe you have an instinct to say, okay, I don't know a ton of people in this church, or I don't know a ton of my neighbors or my coworkers, and so I wanna start bringing people around my dinner table more often. Desire to want to love people in a new way. Maybe for you, it's just simply the love of neighbor for you might just mean wearing a mask. Like you might believe in your heart of hearts, masks are stupid, they don't do anything, I have a right to not wear one. And you think, okay, but if this makes somebody else feel safe, out of love for that person, I'm going to defer to them. I'm, I'm going, I'll, sure, okay, I'll wear a mask out, out of love for this person. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. But that's what I mean. New desires become awakened. As you're born again, you start to think creatively, how can I love people in new ways? I remember this feeling of uh, when we were at the hospital with each of our two children, we, you know, you have this horrifying feeling of like, okay, there's this like little child, there's like this newborn infant in our hospital room. What, what do we do with it? Like, what, what do you do? There's no instruction manual. They just hand you a baby and <laughs> say, good luck, bye. And so I just remember that horrifying feeling of like, I don't know what to do with this child. And you know, you kind of quickly learn for this newborn infant, all it really needs, if it's gonna grow up, it just needs to eat, sleep, and poop. That's kind of all it needs in order for it to grow up. Now I tell you that because Peter uses this born again imagery and says, okay, if you've been born again, you're now this little infant baby, what do you need in order to grow up into this new spiritual life that you've been born into? And so he starts to flesh that out at the beginning of chapter two. Let me show you real quick. Look at verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So what's he saying? He's saying to grow up. If, you're, if you've been born again and you're this new little Newborn infant, in order to grow up, there are certain things that you have to remove from your life and certain things you have to add to your life. What do you remove? Verse one, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Imagine how different our culture would be if more people cut out malice from their life, deceit, and deception, hypocrisy, envy, slander. But notice, Peter's not talking to the culture. He's talking to the church. 
He's saying this begins with us. If we've been truly born again, if God's spirit has come in, then we have a new instinct inside of us to want to get rid of our malice, both from our tongues and our thumbs, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. That instinct begins with us. Before we can expect the world to have those instincts, it's gotta begin with us. So that's what we seek to remove, but then what do you add? He says, well, long for pure spiritual milk. What is that? (laughs) Well, uh, most commentators believe that what he's talking about here, based on the context, he's talking about the word of God, which we're gonna circle back to here in just a second. But anyway, if you put all that together, here's what he's saying. When God transforms your life, here's what it does. You develop a new appetite and a new allergy. You develop a new appetite for loving people and for the very word of God. You have a hunger for it and you develop an allergy toward your own malice, your own deceit, your own instincts toward hypocrisy, your own instincts towards envy and slandering other people. Here's what I want you to see. Being a Christian is not just about being right. What God is doing in your life is he's not just, he he doesn't just want you to, fall into positions of power, the transformation that God does inside of you is giving you, giving you a whole new motivational structure, appetites and allergies, a new love for God and, and a new love for your neighbor, learning how to love. This is what God does in us. This is what the new birth does. It awakens you to the freedom and the capacity towards humility and empathy, and kindness, and gentleness, devotion to God, a whole new being, so new that you might as well become a new person. That's what the new birth does. Lastly, quickly, how do you get it? If you're interested in saying, okay, that sounds nice. I would like for my insides to be renovated to that degree. How do I get that? Well, let's look at that lastly. Look at verse 22. This is a little little clunky, but bear with me. I'm gonna try to walk you through this real quick. Verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. He says, okay, so your souls gets purified, it becomes cleansed, it becomes new. How does that happen? By obeying the truth. What does that mean? What is the truth he's talking about? What does it mean to obey said truth? Well, keep going. Look at verse 23. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Same idea, he's just restating it. You've been born again, you've been cleansed, you've been purified. There's this new birth that has happened through the word of God. So the truth, word of God, same thing. Now, he goes on a little bit of a detour. In verse 24, he quotes Isaiah 40. He's basically making this point that God's word is everlasting, it's permanent, it's gonna be there forever. But that's a little sidebar thought. If you stick to his main thought, he still hasn't told you what this word is, what this truth is, what is the word of God. And he finally tells you in verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Put all that together, here's what he's saying. The truth that we obey, back in verse 22, is the good news that was preached to you. When you hear the very gospel itself, to respond to it obediently means that you respond to it in faith. The gospel itself, by hearing and responding in faith, that's what brings about this transformation inside of you. 
If that's still confusing, let me, let me read you this quote. It's at the beginning of your bulletin. Uh, I think it's the, second, it's the second reflection there. Maybe this will be um, more clarifying. But here's how one theologian put it. He says this, the word of God, the message about Jesus and about what God has done through him, seen as the fulfillment of the ancient scriptures is the thing which causes people to be born again. The followers of Jesus seem to have discovered as early as the days of Pentecost that when they spoke to people about Jesus, something happened. It wasn't just that people were interested or that they decided to either go along with the message or to reject it. It was that the word seemed to carry an energy, a power beyond the mere words, remarkable though they were in themselves. It was as though when the word was spoken, something like a blood transfusion was taking place in at least some of the hearers. They found themselves gripped by it, transformed by it, rinsed out by it, given a new sense of the presence of God by it. Yes, in hearing the word, they tasted that the Lord is good and they have been born again. Here's what he's saying. The gospel itself is so inherently powerful and beautiful just by hearing it. If you have ears to hear it, it has the capacity to transform you from the inside out. The gospel, what is that? It's the, it's the story of Jesus. The good news that the most exalted king has come down for those at the bottom. It's the story of the one of the God who has all power came not to take power, but to give power away. It's the story of someone who is willing to stand in the place of sinners and to receive the penalty that we deserve, but he said, I will bear it in myself on the cross instead. And he did it all, not because he was compelled by how awesome we were, but 100% by sheer mercy. Here's what this means. That story tells you that though you and I have given God a million reasons to abandon you, he has chosen not only to not abandon us, but to love us to continue to move towards us with kindness and grace and forgiveness. And if you will allow yourself to hear that news that yes, I am dominated by evil and sin and my own screw ups and yet I am still loved, that has the power to crack you open and traumatize you in the most beautiful of ways. Not in the sense that it's, you know, it's just you know, religious sentimentality, just church warm fuzzies but an actual supernatural transformation from the inside out to know that you are loved like that. Final thought, I'll, I'll end with this. If you're anything like me, you are anxiously awaiting the arrival of Stranger Things season four. But if you remember Stranger Things season three, if you watched it, um, the, the kind of the big bad guy of of season three was this big monster called the Mind Flay. The Mind Flay was this big, evil, scary monster that had the capacity basically to kind of take over individual people. So people are going through their lives and like the monster comes in and takes over their mind and they're kind of under the mind control of the evil so that they're doing whatever the big monster wants them to do. And in season three, you remember one of the big characters is this guy named Billy. You remember Billy, the lifeguard with the wicked mustache? He gets taken over by the mind flay 
And so he's under its control. He, he forgets who he is. He's, he's, he's going about doing whatever the evil thing wants it to do. Uh, he, he does whatever it wants him to do. And so if you remember at the end of season three, sorry, spoiler alert coming, Billy is, has, has the hero of the story, this, this young girl named Eleven. He has her pinned to the ground and she's helpless underneath his evil power and his evil force. And somehow, in a mysterious, weird way, she has the capacity to look into his mind or look into his soul, and she sees this memory that has been buried way deep down of when Billy was a little boy. He's a little boy, and he's on the beach with his mother, and it's this kind of beautiful scene. And so she begins in that moment, through her tears, as she's, you know, as the life is being squeezed out of her, she starts to tell him this story from his own life. And here's what she says. She says, you ran to her. There were seagulls. She wore a hat with a blue ribbon, a long dress with a blue and red flower, yellow sandals covered in sand. She was pretty. She was really, really pretty. And you were happy. And it's just this beautiful moment where Eleven is telling him this story that he has loved, that even though he is consumed with evil, she tells him, you are still loved. And it's, it's amazing, that scene, in that moment, you can see his eyes go from dead to life. You can see, like the spell is broken. You know, to quote P.T. Barnum, he comes alive in that moment and begins to fight off the monster and defend Eleven and everyone lives happily ever after. But what's so fascinating to me is that that word, the story of you are loved, had the power to transform him and he became born again as it were. And Peter is saying the same thing. If you will let that, if you will just hear that word, if you will hear that story, the good news that here is this man that through his life and death and resurrection has freed you from death and sin and evil. If you will hear the good news, that has the power for you to come alive. So the invitation for you this morning is to hear it and to respond to the truth with obedience, which is to trust it, to believe it, to, to personalize it as your own. That's the invitation for you to come alive, this, even right here this morning. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have not abandoned us, though, you, though we've given you millions and millions of reasons to. Thank you that you have continued to move towards us in love and what you seek from us is a whole new life, a life that you have made possible through the power of your spirit and through the person and work of your son. And it's in his name that we pray these things, amen.